Welcome to Orchestrated Relationships, a podcast studying relational value. I'm David Homan, your host. Years ago, I formed a community of people called Connectors, people who have an innate ability to build and maintain authentic relationships across their personal and professional lives and who thrive on making connections. The community was formed out of a need to develop a system and a methodology to help relational value be valued. And the most effective way I've found so far is to champion someone else, which is why I have in front of me the incredible Ramphus Castro. Ramphus, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, David. Now, originally from Puerto Rico, now based in New York City, you started your career as an engineer at Microsoft before becoming a serial entrepreneur and a direct investor in companies solving some of humanity's greatest challenges which also generated over $2 billion in value for investors by exclusively addressing the 2030 United Nations Sustainable Development, or SDG, goals, showcasing how to align values with maximizing returns. You're a Coffin Fellow, which is a network of innovation investors that have returned eight times to limited partners around the world since its inception, where your research and thesis development is focused on closing the funding gap for early-stage companies globally, helping scale entrepreneurship programs with presence in over 200 cities, and supporting underestimated founders impacting over 30,000 new entrepreneurs per year. So that's obviously your short bio, and you have much more to achieve in this life. Um, And also, congratulations on being a new proud father. Thank you. When I think about impact, I think about relationships. It's, It's not what is on somebody's resume. It's really who the people were around them that helped them achieve something. And then more than that, what they do with that community to help others achieve. So tell me a little bit about um, your passion around one of the projects you're working on and its impact. Sure. Uh, absolutely. As you mentioned, it's all about people, right? And, and my core thesis on how I approach both philanthropic work, investment work, and anything else is we're all in this together, right? It's one planet and we need to find ways to help each other. So the project I'm focused on uh, is uh, something called the Power Up Fund by Hispanics in Philanthropy. Uh, and its focus is on leveraging philanthropic dollars against private uh, to funnel more capital to underestimated Latinx founders and fund managers uh, in the U.S. Obviously, in this day and age, it's something that should have been done a decade ago or more. Um, I think that there's something uh, incredibly naive about a system that doesn't address such a growing part of its population appropriately and doesn't address the innovation in that community in a way that actually can have both resonant and commercial value. So when you think about this fund being developed and your lens and others around you focusing on it, what gets amplified when these funders and the access to these founders and the access to capital is changed? David, I mean that's exactly right. It should have should have been done a long time ago. And the opportunity really is that Latinx includes other underestimated founders, Black, Indigenous, and others. Uh, The rates of entrepreneurship are extremely high. So when you see communities that right now, if you look at the data, it seems like they're economically depressed or they have all these other challenges. When you dig below the surface, there are hundreds, thousands of entrepreneurs building businesses every single day, right? From the food truck to the small restaurant to the tech startup in places that you wouldn't otherwise uh, see. Uh, And the amplification of this project, it would allow for entrepreneurs that 
are already doing the work in their communities to be able to create, help create wealth right where they are and reinvest that wealth as part of that work uh, in their communities and reinvest it back, which is the more traditional tra trajectory that I'm used to, I guess, as an entrepreneur myself. Um, somebody helped me in the past uh, as I was building my companies and be able to pay it forward uh, is how, how we think about the opportunity ahead for creating the kind of communities and economy that we'll want for a, a more just and equitable future. Well, it's about time, and I you know, can't wait to continue supporting you in this endeavor. Uh, so when you t think about type of connections you need to move this forward, what type of people, what type of groups need to share this passion with you? And, and how would you show them that this is something that directly impacts their future, even if they're not Latinx? There's, there's two, two, two groups. One is editors within media properties uh, that want to highlight stories that highlight the inequities that we're facing from those that are experiencing it themselves, right? Latina-led uh, companies, funds, and others that are out there uh, that they want to connect with those stories and, and be able to see that. Uh, to be able to see the opportunity ahead. Because the other part of individuals are asset owners and asset allocators that want to align their investing with their values without sacrificing returns, right? I mean, that's really the, the conversation on the unit sustainable of the goals and the opportunity ahead. Uh, because the, the economies globally are more diverse, right? If we look at U.S. alone uh, by 2040 uh, or more, uh, more than half uh, will be from uh, traditionally underrepresented groups in technology, finance, and others. Uh, so it's everywhere, right? And the rates of entrepreneurship, which is the number one uh, creator of jobs and other uh, spaces in, in the economy, uh, are led by Latina, right? They do it at eight times the rate of, of others. So investing in, in these groups allow for more vibrant, equitable economy and more socially justice, socially minded uh, country for everyone. I, I, that's it's beautiful. I think, especially the way you say it, and uh, again, what it makes me think of is, I think there's an assumption, like a, a very false assumption, that entrepreneurs of a certain race or gender create things just to benefit their community. I think they might look at something as having a pain point in that community, but not necessarily only trying to solve a problem for themselves. And I think that the, that the opposite is true in terms of how a lot of the current mindset of investors are. They're looking to solve a problem for them, not looking to solve a problem for the market or the world, which is much bigger than what their worldview could be. Absolutely. I mean, you, you see it in, in companies all the time. I mean, even back in, in Puerto Rico, I remember there's always the discussion on, you know, where are the entrepreneurs, where are the companies, and they're there, right? And then making those commitments and seeing those companies grow uh, because the problems that a lot of these entrepreneurs are, are going after, they're shared by a lot of communities all over the world, right? So everything from underbanking, right? If you go, who are the most underbanked uh, communities and groups? Uh, it's, it's a certain, it is sort of a certain demographic. Uh, and when you see the companies that get built around that, then those who are best positioned to understand the problems that these communities are facing, those companies end up being fantastically valuable. Yeah. So when I, I think about this, and I'll go back a little bit to my childhood again, because every one of these podcasts prescribed or not involves a personal share. And it's because I believe only by op opening with humor and vulnerability to actually get to know somebody else. 
So I grew up in a family where we didn't eat Southern food or Jewish food. We were cosmopolitan living in a tiny town of Florida to the point where I moved to New York and it was, everyone was like, why do you want to live here? And I go, because of the food. And it wasn't that I could just find the best food of a culture. It's was, it's because I could actually find the best combination of foods because of the combination of cultures. And when I think about this in the context of diversity, it's very simple. Tell me something in innovation that didn't come from diversity. Tell me something where the best innovation came because of homogeny. And so when I think about that in terms of food, like I grew up with a mother who was a cook and I became a cook. I'd like to consider myself a chef, but no one's been that enthusiastic about my food yet. But um, I, I am constantly fascinated. You know, you say 2040, like what also happens then is there are a lot of new different variations of cultural heritage. So my mom and I, my brother and I will play these games and I do this with dinner parties where I want to figure out the best food that's a combination of Jewish and Japanese. And I found it, which is a crispy Manischewitz mix potato laki. And you put wasabi creme on top of it, raw tuna, wakame and sesame seeds, and maybe a little bit of other types of seaweed. And it is such a combination. It's actually one of my friend's cultures who's Japanese and Jewish. And the combination is actually even more incredible than just having sushi. Um, and when I wanted to think about, you know, funny and great ways to combine things, like I wanted to understand what, what like um, a chicken picate taco, right? Really lemony, buttery chicken in a taco. Like, what's that like? It's actually really good because a corn tortilla um, with added butter and lemon, like, goes even brighter as flavor. Um, but I've never found that. I had to make it. And I made it with friends who were able to share their heritage with mine. And I never realized, and this is why I wanted to share this with you, that that was actually the way I wanted to build community in the same way. I did not care about talking to people who were like me. Because, again, if you have a bunch of people around you who are like you, maybe you're boring. Right? But if you have a lot of people around you who are different, but there's a shared value system, then it's constantly exciting. So again, like I come from a position of much different privilege, like being a white guy, even though I'm an average height with curly froish hair and Jewish, um, where I've, I've been able to see where my culture can be added to because I come from a perspective of being in a culture that is seemingly more representative of community than it actually is. So you coming from Puerto Rico, which is just as much a part of America is where I'm from, but not. Exactly. And um, how do you, how do you look at the relationships you've built, both in your community that you grew up with, and then how does that extend to the way you look at community and diversity from this lens as an entrepreneur and as a founder? So I mean, that's I mean that's a fantastic question, right? Uh, from from my perspective where I grew up and how I grew up is, is ends up being that, I guess, from a, I guess a superpower, right? I mean, in the context of being able to see others when everyone doesn't see you, right? I mean, specifically when you think about the, the relationship of 
Puerto Rico and the U.S., it's a colony, right? And on the one hand, you'll have, you know, others talking about Cuba and supporting Cuba are doing things in other administrations. And then, but at the same time, it, the U.S. has a colony under. Uh, and, and those experiences of building those communities and helping each other, right? I mean, after hurricanes uh, and all kinds of other challenges, you see that that's shared globally, right? Everybody wants the same kinds of things for their kids, right? Health, safety, education. But then experiencing the challenge of coming from nothing, having nothing, and then building from that, it, it allows for connecting with others in, in a real way uh, with things that they care about and realizing that we're in this together and amplifying everybody else's work is how we build that work, right? And it comes from, from where I come from, right? Building that and, and that experience of community when government is not coming to help you, right? It doesn't matter what people think about it. Um, you know, philanthropy is not going to come to help you. Um, you know, investors, all these, all these other um, groups or institutions that people think to, they, it's not, they, they're not, right? It's, at the end of the day, it's individuals. Uh, and that goes back to entrepreneurs, right? That's why I, my bias is around entrepreneurs and those that are in those communities building, they understand it. But then they're connected with others everywhere, right? So this connectedness is sort of embedded, uh, I guess, into my, my lens and how I view the world. And, and what I always look to do is to, to add, right? Because there's the cross, it's at this intersection, the cross-pollination where the really exciting opportunities happen, right? Where you have different states, different countries, different backgrounds collaborating together, collectively we can see what others in the past just haven't been able to see because they just have their one lens, right? And, and we're living through that now in the context of the pandemic and the inequities that we see in how legislation is passed in the U.S. We see it very clearly, right? And the power of fund goes to address that before all this pandemic, right? These inequities have always been there, right? And now it's very clear to see, but if you listen to those that come from the communities that are experiencing the challenges, then you're, it's, it's, you have a higher likelihood to be on the right side of history, right? To dealing with and addressing the dignities and iniquities, but that those are, but it's really the community themselves that they solve it for themselves, right? And you're just there to connect the dots uh, and be as supportive as you can, but it's really individuals uh, leading their own efforts to solve their own challenges and sharing that with others. I, it's so beautifully said, which is making it even harder for me the quote I chose for this podcast to share now, um, because you're painting a picture of a world that I really hope in our lifetimes becomes real uh, in a way that this isn't a course correction or a way to solve a small problem, but to actually build a larger societal one. But I'm somebody who's an eternal optimist with most things except for this. Now, are you familiar with um, the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? No, I mean, I've heard of it. So, um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are characters in Hamlet. They're the messengers who go to get Hamlet and bring him back. And <laughs> they're killed. You know that from Hamlet. So, Tom Stopper wrote a brilliant play about these sort of brilliant and tweedledee, tweedledum characters who are both profound and naive at the same time. And you know they're going to their death. You know this in the whole play, but it's fascinating to watch this. And one of the things that comes out of this um, is a very short quote, but I, I love it, which is, as, at least you can always count on self-interest. And, and I, I look at a lot of relationships and understanding value, and like what makes somebody want to 
actually change, want to build something, want to recognize a fault, when something's in it for them, it might be something where, you know, the old adage was, you know, build a massive business, whatever it does to the environment or the world, and then give back at the end of it. Now we're living in a late age where there's a lot more philanthropists and investors who are giving during their lifetimes. And then we're getting to an age where I think you've really hit uh, the nail on the head, which is that people's self-interest is also the solution because they saw that you couldn't build something and then help society. You had to build it to help society. And that's a lot of what I see through the lens you've given me of where innovation is. So again, I, I think it's, it's a pessimistic thing because I can count on everyone to do the thing that's right for them. But if I, the thing that's right for them also builds community, is it only right for them? And how do we invest in that and the right people to actually scale things that make us think that by 2040, everyone looks back and goes, this was an incredible pivotal moment for society, not the horrific one we think we're living in now. Mm. I mean, that's that's where the aligning, the, the investing with your values is so important, right? I mean, if everybody, from a self-interest perspective, if you are putting your time and dollars, right, so both are investments, right, uh, in things that you care about, uh, then it's the, the outcomes uh, end up being a bit more straightforward, right? And that's why the sustainable development goals are useful, right? Instead of investing in some random, you know, photo sharing app or something, right? Uh, investing in, you know, uh, health, you know, sort of health, wellness, education, so that there are new kinds of tools that make it more accessible for those that don't have access to the kind of private schools that are available in New York, uh, then that helps everyone, right? So it's something that everyone has the power to do today, right? They don't need to wait, right? It's really being intentional about how to allocate their time and dollars in a way that's aligned with their values or self-interest, right? Uh, but enables them to have the outcomes be embedded by default, right? And that's how I think about investing in entrepreneurs and communities and efforts. It's all about making sure that they are in the service of others, right? That the, the problem that they're solving, if it's solved, that it actually makes things better for whoever's investing, for the community, for everyone, uh, and not just for uh, a few. Uh, and that makes it more straightforward. And I've, I've seen this, right? It's not and over and over and over where you're, you know, you see companies that are connecting, uh, you know, farm workers with, you know, farmers markets and doing this from online. Well, it helps, you know, generate a new space for others that wouldn't connect with the marketplace uh, to be able to get access to new resources. And what would happen if for certain people who have yet to adopt that adage being in being wrong was actually in their self-interest. What would happen if we were in a situation where what we really start to understand is that it's okay for change to happen because it's also something that very, very clearly we don't realize we need until we realize it's something that will help us too. And I think that that's a lot of lot of the issues around where everything you're saying sounds so right, yet the, our ability to actually move capital there, our ability to actually 
get people to move this from small percentages to majorities of capital, uh, it's just really, it, it's, it's, for me, it's, it's asinine in some way because it's literally an explosive opportunity sitting there that only because of ignorance or prejudice or lack of vision, people don't see. And, and you're somebody who really lives your value system with this. So I'm, I'm just curious, you know, as we start to close this out, um, what comes to mind that, that helps you live your value system? A quote, a thought, some wisdom that people shared with you that, that lets you beat this drum tirelessly until you actually achieve more and more and people go, oh, right, he was right. That's in my self-interest too. Right. I mean, so one, one quote I guess I use is the, like the golden rule, right? And golden rule in, in generally goes as, you know, I guess do unto others as you, you know, do unto you, but oh, different cultures and different religions have different versions of the golden rule, right? Uh, where it's essentially from my lens is, you know, if you're operating in the service of others, right? Ideally that that's what others do for you as well, right? So it's straightforward to do. But then also the other side of the golden rule, I also keep in mind to be mindful of the breadth and scale of the, in the inequities, right? Where the, the, the sarcastic way would say golden rule is like those who hold the gold make the rules, right? To not lose sight of, those, of that as well, that there is an opportunity to bridge that gap and have everybody operate on the right side of what the golden rule should be and for one to just operate in that way all the time, right? Instead of with the more self-interest uh, operation in the, at the expense uh, of others versus understanding that helping yourself as you help others, then that helps everyone, right? And in a way where uh, it just keeps paying it forward uh, and it compounds because it's not just you, right? It's the network, it's, it's other individuals that now have the opportunity to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do uh, if they were trying to do things by themselves. I think that's really well said. And I think we'll close with that. I'm, I'm grateful for our friendship, for the work that you do, and for the listeners and the orchestrated connecting community to continue to support this essential work. Um, it's not just essential because it's the right thing to do. It's essential because you cannot keep investing in things with lower and lower returns and say that they're right. And yet we continue to do so. And it just flabbergasts me that when there's such incredible innovation and there's such incredible passion, why would somebody put themselves in a situation of denying that? I mean, there's, there's, there's just two quick things I definitely want to leave you with. And one is, you know, if we go just to the more the sexier version of investing, the venture capital, right? It's close to 90% of those funds don't return, Right. And then when you see the other stats, you'll see kind of why. And the data now, Coffin Fellows report, and there's tons of data around this, where ethnic, ethnically diverse teams overperform by 30%, right? So the data is in, right? So anybody that wants to argue with data, good luck with that. And yet there's deep-seated mistrust and disbelief around things that the data make obvious and clear. So now the opportunity is for others to really take the leap, make the leap and say, this is something I don't understand. I don't know how to do. I don't know how to invest in this way. Uh, I'll commit capital to those that do. And I'll be a part of that journey because we all want the same thing, right? And we want that to be the... With 
a more ethnically diverse team, you might have great combinations of food that one's never heard of before. Exactly. Um, and when we can get together and cook together again, which may be a year or more, uh, yeah. we will find ways to combine our heritages in a ways that our mothers never thought could happen. Um, so with that, Rafis, thank you so much for being on this podcast and thank you so much for all the work that you do. And we will talk with you again soon. Thank you, David. On the next podcast of Orchestrated Relationships, stay tuned for Michael Fitzpatrick, who discusses how a single note, just like a single relationship, can change the world. We'll close with an excerpt from Movement 3 of Rust for string sextet and percussion. Mm-hmm.